0: Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning, all. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere. And we welcome you to our Bible class here this morning. Welcome all of those who are here in our gymnasium. And there is a sheet available with the readings, uh, scripture readings on it. We also welcome all those in the St. Louis area who are joining us on KFUO 850 a.m., And those literally worldwide, I guess, might be joining us uh, online at kfuo.org. This is the first Sunday in Advent, so I I guess I can wish you all a Happy New Year. Uh, The church year calendar begins with the first Sunday in Advent and carries on from there. So we will, as we uh, ordinarily do in this class, we'll be looking at the Scripture readings that will be assigned for next sunday the second sunday in advent and we'll get to those in just a moment but let's begin with a word of prayer in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen lord god heavenly father we come before you with thanksgiving and joy as we think of your son the light of the world who has come into the world to save sinners and we thank you for your holy spirit who creates and sustains faith in us, so that as we heard this morning from Isaiah 2, we might continue to walk in the light of your Son and the way to everlasting life. We pray your blessing upon us as we gather here to study of your word. May your Holy Spirit continue to guide and bless us in that study, that we might grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word, and especially also for in your will for us as your children here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You know, it struck me as I'm standing here that I've got, I've got a rare object lesson behind me uh, to say a few words, and for those on the radio, uh, the season of Advent, let's just take a minute and talk about it. Uh, Advent, of course, the word means coming. And in Advent, we ordinarily are emphasizing a threefold coming, of our savior jesus christ first of all and foremost i think for for most of us it's a season of preparation and the celebration of our lord's first coming his incarnation in bethlehem and you see probably nowhere else as big a contrast in the secular calendar and the church year calendar as you do here in advent right society around us and all the stores have already moved into christmas in fact i think uh... It was sometime around uh, uh, Halloween that uh, I saw things going up in stores already for Christmas. And so it's pretty much, the you know, we were already at Christmas, and you'll be seeing the, all the advertisements on television and so on for, for Christmas presents. But in the church, it's a, it's a more contemplative a season of preparation uh, for the, the celebration of our Savior's birth and the great blessing that that is. And uh, some of you may remember, now we have gone over to the blue Advent candles here. How many of you growing up had uh, a variation of purple as, as the calendar? Yeah, a lot of your hands go up. That's what our church was when I was growing up. Uh, the reason it was purple back at that time was there. it is a season that emphasizes repentance as well, not as fully as Lent does. So many churches the color of purple for Advent was not quite as strong as it was for their color of purple for Lent. And again, there are variations on all these colors. Then I believe it was in the 1960s, frankly, with the Roman Catholic Church's Vatican II conference, that this whole idea of blue came up, and the color of blue is more one of hope uh, liturgically. So the color of blue then became... uh, Uh, More and more prevalent, more and more popular, and maybe along with that, maybe a little less emphasis on repentance uh, in in the season of, of Advent. And yet we continue to hear in the season of Advent about John the Baptist, and what's he out there saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? So it's kind of an interesting thing. I know that there are some churches that have gone to the blue that have switched back to the purple. And, uh, again, this is, is, again, one of those things that it's just, there's no right or wrong here, okay? So it's not that a church has blue, they're wrong, or if a church has purple, they're wrong, but it's kind of the way it has happened. And, of course, the circular uh, shape of the Advent wreath, meaning, again, eternal life, has no beginning, no end in the circle. The greenery also reminds us the color of life, and the... Red berries we have in here, uh, reminding us of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. And, of course, the light, as we get closer and closer to the celebration of our Lord's Incarnation, there's more and more light. We are lighting another candle each Sunday as the time gets closer and closer uh, for the light of the world to come. And then finally, just uh, it's not on the fourth Sunday, it's on the third Sunday, that we light the uh, rose-colored or pink-colored candle there. And that's because the third Sunday in Advent is the Sunday of joy, in Latin called Gaudete Sunday. And the readings for that Sunday, uh, most years anyway, um, point us to joy and rejoicing as our Savior's birth draws closer. And so, uh, anyway, I thought I'd just take a minute while I had, a, I had an object lesson right in front of me here to explain. You don't get to do this in church. You know, we don't stop, this, stop the service and say, well, let's explain the Advent wreath a little here. Uh, but at any rate, this is a, uh, a great time in the church year uh, when, again, we focus on our own preparation for, this, for the receiving of Christ. And then there are, I mentioned there are three comings. That's the first and foremost. Second one is the way he comes to us today the way he comes to us presently in word and sacrament, and then also finally the, the second coming that will occur on a day that has been set and established, and when he will come again, not in, not in meekness and humility as he did the first time, but in all power and majesty and glory. So you'll hear combinations in the readings, you'll hear combinations of those comings. Primarily, the combination of his first coming at Bethlehem, and his second coming on the last day, and that will be the case. We'll see in our Old Testament lesson for today, as we've got kind of a shared um, emphasis, really, in terms of his coming in these lessons. Okay, all right. So that's that's a little primer on Advent. Uh, let's take a look then at we want to look at Isaiah chapter eleven. And it's interesting, today's uh, Old Testament lesson, Isaiah chapter 2, you'll hear some uh, familiar uh, or common themes or emphases uh, between these two. Um, Just a little bit in background, remember that uh, Isaiah is written, let's round it off to 700 or so B.C. Uh, We've got the northern kingdom falling in 722 to Assyria. We've got the southern kingdom and Jerusalem falling finally in 586 B.C., even though there were a lot, a lot of attack going on prior to that. But this time it's the Babylonians who take God's uh, people in the southern kingdom over in 586 and take a lot of them into captivity. So Isaiah is writing prior to this. And God's people are going to be reminded of God's words, even when they are in captivity in Babylon. And Isaiah will be a a key uh, uh, instrument of God to do just that. Uh, book of Isaiah, incredible book, 66 chapters, um, so much in the way of messianic prophecies concerning the coming Christ. And one of the most quoted, I think I'd go out on a limb and say probably the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, you know, pointing back to prophecies that are fulfilled. So it is an incredible book. All right, let's take a look. Uh, we're at Isaiah 11, starting at verse 1. And I'm going to have to, when we get down to verse 10, I noticed here on the sheet, for those of you that are here, for some reason I didn't include verse 10. And so I will, uh, I will read that. But if you have a Bible, you may want to pull it out and look at it as well. Well, let's start right at verse 1. There shall come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. All right, let's stop here for a second. First of all, when you think of a stump, you think of something full of life and vigor and uh, and a great living thing. No, just the opposite, right? The stump is what you've got left after the tree is taken down and is cut. And uh, many times, you know, you get a, one of these stump grinders to come in and you grind the stump out because you don't want to look at that thing in the yard anymore. And so it's, it's really a, a kind of a looking at deadness, uh, what appears to be dead to us anyway. But it says the stump of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse? David's father. Yeah, David's father. So it's a way of saying that from that what appears to be dead family tree literally a shoot or a branch is going to come out huh so at it's there's going to come a time this prophecy is saying that from this rundown appearing to be dead family tree god is going to bring out a fresh new shoot or a fresh um uh Uh, Yeah, fresh shoot coming out now who would be and by the way um, You've got to think to yourself. Well, why didn't he say from the stump of David? He went back a generation and Said why why would he say from the stump of Jesse? Well a lot of scholars think this is a way of saying this is going to be an even greater David That is going to come forth. You know there was the first one and and Except for one incredibly bad incident in his life I think that he did but otherwise was a great uh, ruler and leader of God's people so, uh, killed Goliath and so on but there's gonna be an even greater David coming now who's gonna be the even greater David who's going to come from the stump of Jesse from in other words from that same family tree who's that, who's that gonna be eventually yeah Jesus that's a that's a this is always the answer in any children's sermon and it is in this case as well it is going to be with Again, believe this is pointing directly ahead to Christ, okay? And so, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, okay? So again, it is a 700 year in advance, roughly, pointing ahead that from this particular family, even though we wouldn't expect it, especially by the time of Christ, this family is, is not a you know, prominent family. It was back in the time of David, but not now. And here again, God is going to use very humble Mary and that family to keep his promise that it's going to be the house and lineage of David uh, that, from which the Savior is going to come. Now notice then verse 2, uh, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Stop and look at that. You've got the triune God there. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, of the Lord or Yahweh will rest on him on this shoot that's going to come out that we know is Christ there's an Old Testament reference to the triune God we don't usually see or emphasize that but then look at the results of the spirit in other words what is the fruit that the spirit is going to is going to bring the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, it's not going to fear of the Lord in the sense of the son is going to be you know, in, in, uh, shaking in his uh, uh, sandals uh, about the father and what the father is going to do. No, it's this kind of reverence and fear for the Lord. What the, frankly, what the, a lot of the leaders uh, at this time did not have. They did not have that fear of the Lord. And this new one, this shoot that's going to come out, exactly will. I want to read some familiar words to you from, and notice how they're in parallel with, with a counsel and might. From Isaiah two chapters earlier, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Right? So you've got the counsel in there. And Mighty God everlasting father prince of peace so again you've got a great parallelism here between isaiah 9 and this prophecy in two chapters later talking about Christ and those gifts of the spirit again which are absent in the leaders the corrupt leaders that would lead to the downfall of Israel you know wisdom and understanding counsel and might knowledge and especially the fear of the Lord and then notice verse three, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And I just when I read that, I think of Jesus uh, saying, uh, "I did not come to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me." And again, it's that that fear of the Lord and that reverence and respect for what the Lord has would send Him to do. Um, Going on, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. That may sound a little strange to us, but the whole idea here is that he is not going to judge merely by appearances, right? And as we often, so often do as mere human beings, we look at something and immediately make a judgment or a conclusion about it. That's not going to be the way he will judge, not by mere appearances or hearsay, right? He's going to not be operating that way. And again, this is in contrast to the way the leaders of that day were operating. But, verse 4, but with righteousness or rightly, fairly you might say, justly, he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So just by that being in there, what do you think we can conclude is happening to the poor at this time in God's land? If he's going to judge with righteousness for the poor and equity for the meek, what's happening right now, do you think, when it comes to the way the poor and the meek are being treated by society at that time, even God's people? They're being what? exploited, yes, exactly, taken advantage of, that uh, huge fortunes are being made on the backs of the poor and in a very unjust way. This, again, is, is one of the things leading to their downfall, leading to the fact that they are judged by God. They are actually abusing and taking advantage of the poor, okay? Then... He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Well, now we're kind of talking about which coming, the first coming or the second coming? He's going to, with the rod of his mouth, he's going to strike the earth, and the breath of his lips kill the wicked. First coming or second coming? Second coming, yeah. And uh, so I wanted to point this out, and you see here, we've got, this is a good example of what I was saying before. We've got the first coming and the second coming kind of mingled together here, both and the same. Okay? And you see the rod of his mouth, uh, you know, being, uh, depicting judgment that is going to be spoken on that last day. And again, the breath of his lips will kill the wicked. Okay? So again, the great power of his word and what that's going to do on the last day. Uh, verse 5, righteousness, and we, we get almost a picture of, a, of, a, of garments here or of being dressed. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So again, uh, it's sort of a, almost a, a fashion statement about the way he is going to operate, right? With righteousness and faithfulness, and using almost garments to depict that. Uh, almost thinking of the robe of righteousness, right, that we hear of in Scripture depicting the righteousness that we have in Christ. Now, starting at verse 6, we get a picture of what the Messianic kingdom is going to look like, that what is it going to look like after the, the king comes, the Messiah comes, and the judgment has taken place, the righteous, only righteous through faith in Christ, are vindicated. And the wicked are already um, judged and condemned. What's it going to look like on that, in that restored creation that's going to occur? Starting at verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Well what's so strange about verse 6? Why does that seem so uh, odd to us and strange to us especially at first part. Those animals together, what do they normally do? Yeah, there would be predators of one another. They one would attack the other, right? If you're saying in verse 6 there that the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb, in other words peacefully coexist with a lamb, huh? That doesn't happen ordinarily, right, in this world. The leopard with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Uh-uh. You wouldn't you wouldn't want to try to put those together uh, in this day and age. So we see we're getting here a picture of the restored creation before it was torn apart by sin. That there will be no more um, of the of the creation, you might say attacking other parts of the creation or the creation divided against itself any longer. They will peacefully dwell together. Um, just a little word on this. There's a, a similar um, have any been in the United Nations building in, in uh, New York, uh, there is an inscription and it's actually, I think it's actually from Isaiah 2, but it's a similar type of thing. And uh, they've got to, you know, beat their swords into plowshares and and the lion and, you know, predators all together. And it seems like it's used there to describe a utopia that maybe we can achieve here on this earth through the United Nations if we're just, you know, vigilant enough and and talk to each other enough and have enough meetings and and, uh, conferences and powwows. But actually, that's not a correct quotation because this is talking about after Christ comes, And what is the church triumphant? What kind of creation are we going to be living in? You know, no longer any contention, no longer any aggravation, no longer any you know, at the creation at enmity with itself, and that's that's what we get there. Uh, End of verse six. Who's the little child that might lead them? Again, the correct answer is. Jesus, that's correct. (laughs) The uh, children's message answer again. uh, And again, remember the parallel with with, uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, right? Unto us a son is given. And so again, uh, pointing clearly ahead to the child who will lead. Uh, Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Again, that doesn't ordinarily happen. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, instead of other animals. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And an adder is just another expression for a snake. Uh, So, you know, you would never, I mean, what mother would let their nursing child play Uh, Near the hole of a cobra snake, right? I don't think that would be something you'd normally recommend, right? And uh, a weaned child, a little bit older child, put his hand right on the adder's den, you know? So the idea here is you do that without fear, without fear of anything bad happening. So this is a way here of showing us, again, the restored creation, uh, the doing away with all that sin has brought into this world. And you know, when Jesus comes and is healing the deaf and the blind and the lame and, and so on, that is just a, sh- a small glimpse of what it's going to be like when there is complete and total healing that takes place uh, for all. In other words, with Jesus, we get uh, the clear message that the reign of God is here, that Jesus, in Jesus God is intervening directly now, personally, in human history, and begins undoing all of the, the bad impacts of sin. And what we see here in Isaiah is what the, the end result is going to look like. Again, no more enmity between the different parts of the creation. And again, we, we can't even imagine that, can we? Because we're so accustomed to living in this world where we have that enmity, even between people, right? All you've got to do is turn on the television and, and watch the news uh, and all the other things that we see in our world. And again, we will have a day when we will be without any of the effect or impact uh, that sin brought into this world. And we can't wait. We look forward to that day. Okay? All right. So that is the... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 9, and I've got to read verse 10. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, okay? My holy mountain, we heard again this morning in, in Isaiah 2, is simply the dwelling place of God. And remember Isaiah 2 this morning it talked about all the nations coming uh, to my holy mountain. And we're going to get that in the Romans reading coming up uh, as well. But let me take a look here. As I say, I I don't know how I did this, but I missed uh, verse 10, which is a pivotal verse at the end here. So verse 10 in Isaiah 11, In that day, so that day is the day that Christ comes. The prophets use that a lot to speak about that great day of Yahweh, or that great day of the Lord when he comes again in glory who shall stand as a signal, or some translations have an, stand as an ensign uh, for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And you know, it's that middle part there that Paul is going to pick up on in Romans. Of him, of this one who is coming, of the Messiah, of the Christ, the nations will inquire. Well, who are the nations? Everybody, which includes not only Jews but Gentiles. And we're going to see in the next lesson. You can keep this in mind because Paul's going to quote it in in our next lesson. And um, we had again, we had that in Isaiah eleven two this morning, or um, two Isaiah two this morning, uh, the Old Testament lesson for this morning. And it's throughout the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he's not coming just for the Jews, just for the descendants of Abraham, but for all people. Okay, All right, so we will look at this next Sunday then, second Sunday in Advent. Any comments or questions or anything in here? You can see, again, this is a good example of a prophecy 700 years before it's going to take place, coming out, the shoot coming out from the family of Jesse the stump of Jesse which looks to be dead and gone and lo and behold look at look at what's going to happen as a result of that okay any questions any comments all right let's go on to the second reading which is from the book of Romans chapter 15 and we are getting near the end of the book of Romans here so we're going to see Paul here giving some encouragement and talking about the way that he would like things to go in amongst the Christians in Rome and again you've got both Jews and Gentiles here and Paul is really expressing the desire that they will uh, live in harmony with one another and he's going to go on for quite some time here to demonstrate to the Jews that in the Old Testament there is plenty of talk of the Gentiles coming into this kingdom, and not only coming into it, but being welcomed into it by God, which was a concept that to many of them was a totally foreign concept. They could not comprehend that that would actually be the case. So let's start with Romans 15. We're gonna, we start with verse 4. Okay? For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Well, what scriptures is Paul referring to here that would have been written in former days at this time? The Old Testament, yeah. So it's the Old Testament that he's referring to, that which was written in former days, was written with what purpose in mind? Our instruction, our instruction, yeah. In other words, that's that's really what... The Word of God is here for, isn't it? To provide instruction for us. It's where God reveals things that we would never know otherwise. You know, there are certain things we can deduce just by looking at the creation around us, I think. Number one, that there, there must be a creator out there somewhere, there must be a supreme being, and that that supreme being must be very intelligent and very powerful. Uh, just by looking at the complexity of the creation around us. But, you know, there's not a whole lot else we can conclude. We need God to reveal everything else to us. Otherwise, we simply wouldn't know it. And where does he do that? In his word. It contains his revealed knowledge to us. So it's written for our instruction. And then what's the result of that instruction? He goes on in verse 4, that through, number one, endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I just want to say a word about that, encouragement of the scriptures. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, outside of the Christian church in particular, if you were to ask them what their impression of the Bible is, what do you think they would respond? What would be some responses we would get? Again, non, not people outside of the Christian church, what are your impressions of the Bible? What do you think they would say? What are some answers we might hear? Oh, yeah, somebody else is going to run my life and tell me what to do. Okay, that would be one. Outdated, yeah. Violent, oh, yeah, that's true, that's true. Violent, yeah, yeah. Any others? Just written by man, not by God. Yeah, that's a good point, okay. And obviously, we would say, uh, no, quite the opposite. That, you know, the Bible is not, and I, th- I think a lot of people, as a misnomer, especially outside of the church, that the Bible is just a rule book that is there to tell me what I can and can't do in life. It's there just to spoil all my fun and, uh, and tell me that I can't have any joy in my life. I mean, that's the way, they, I think some people anyway, look at it. And look at what Paul says there. No, just the opposite, that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? We might have hope i mean apart from you know the we would say the main purpose of the scriptures is to point us to christ the old testament you know leads up to and points to christ the new testament begins with christ and everything he did and goes on to talk about now what does this mean for us and for for all people really And so the the heart and core of the scriptures is Christ, not just a bunch of rules and regulations and laws and things of that nature. And that is where we get hope. And hope meaning the opposite of despair, that it is through Christ that we have a sure and certain hope That, uh, that, that death is not the end, that the grave is not our final resting place, you know, that's the hope that we have in Christ. And that's really, when someone is, is on their deathbed or someone has died, that is the hope that we have to offer people. It's not a hope that we made up. It's a hope that we have been, has been revealed to us and we share with others. I don't know what else, you know, when someone dies, and you, you, uh, it's kind of interesting, you go to a funeral home sometimes and uh, just kind of be a fly on the wall. And listen to some of the things that are said. And I'll tell you, there's not a whole lot of hope in some of the things that are said there, right? Uh, Maybe what a great person they were, and that uh, is probably very, very true. Um, You know, how uh, they didn't have to suffer a long time, if that's the case, uh, and so on. But there's only one thing that can bring hope to that situation, and that's Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That's the only hope we have, this side of heaven. And so uh, that's, that's the real purpose of the scriptures and the instruction that we have. And that's why it, I'm so glad that, that you are here this morning, that we've got people across the way in the foundation class. We've got people in Dr. Seifried's class. We've got people across the hallway in a, a BBT class, uh, Christ at Work, and so on because this is where hope is to be found and we want to fill ourselves with that instruction so when that day comes we have that sure and certain hope to hang on to that's the only thing we have so again endurance or bearing up and hope now verse 5 may the God of endurance so he is the source of the endurance right and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. Now let's stop there for a second. Harmony. We've got one, I see one very distinguished musician here with us this morning. So by, by harmony, does that mean uniformity, that everybody is playing the same note and sounding precisely the same? In harmony, you have what? You have different instruments playing different parts and you know and it all comes together and sounds beautiful beautiful right hopefully and so there paul is not saying to them here you have to be uniform you jews and gentiles you have to be uniform in everything you do and lockstep the same and that's the way you have harmony is if you have uniformity no not really now Paul would never say, and we would never say, that where God's word speaks definitively about something, that we should somehow do something else. That's not really what we're talking about here. There are differences in customs. There are differences in traditions between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is saying, do your best to live in harmony. So, again, areas where God's Word has not spoken definitively, we normally refer to these, there's a a, a big word we use, as matters of adiaphora, we call them. Now, let's go to present day, because I think this has something to say to us today as well. What are some things, either within one congregation or maybe between congregations, that God's Word has not spoken definitively about? They're matters of Christian freedom, and if somebody else chooses to do something a little bit differently, we don't come down and, and criticize them and condemn them. We try to live in harmony with them, even though they might be doing something a little bit differently than we're doing. What are some of those examples today? I was thinking of a few of them myself, but let me ask you. Music style is one of them. So in, in worship, that uh, and again, we're not saying... We're not saying that, you know, obviously we want to be careful that the, the words are theologically correct, that the, 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 what is being confessed there is theologically correct. But just look at, even if you don't go to the contemporary traditional thing in our, uh, in our uh, culture, just take a look at different parts of the world. We're in Africa, for example, or other parts of the world, where they worship in ways very different than we do, right? And they, I've, I've heard, I've not witnessed this, that they actually dance when they bring the offering forward? Oh, imagine that if our ushers were dancing with the, uh, the offering up the aisle on Sunday morning. Pastor, you've got to speak with those ushers. They can't be doing that, right? No, we would live in... There's such joy there as they bring their gifts to the Lord that they actually dance with the offering up to the Lord. So that would be one example, music and, and the worship. Now, again, we're... Please understand, I'm not saying we're, we're condoning anything that's heretical. We're not doing that, but there's just, there are a lot of areas of what, we, of what we call Christian freedom. Any others you think of? The day you worship, yeah. Uh, and we would say, obviously, uh, the Sabbath, the Christians, Old Testament day of worship was Saturday and still is for the, for the Jews and, well, I guess the Seventh-day Adventists as well. But Christians change it to Sunday. Why? Because that's the day that... Christ rose from the dead, yeah. So, would we say it's, it's wrong to worship some other day? No, in fact, fantastic. You know, we'll be starting to do that, actually, this coming Wednesday. And we have a Saturday night service here, so obviously we don't uh, think that's wrong. Okay, But if a church, so if a church said to us, and frankly, there are uh, a couple denominations that might say that to us, frankly, that you must worship on Saturday. That's the day that God established as a Sabbath. And he did it in, in connection with creation. So you're wrong to worship on Sunday. We would say no. That's, uh, and we've got scripture to back us up on that as well. So, okay, day of worship, uh, music in worship, any other things you can think of? Oh, yeah. Common cup versus individual cup for communion, right? And there are some, uh, I think it tends to be more on the side of the common cup where people will say that's the only way that you should distribute the Lord's Supper because it signifies the unity that we all have uh, as we are together as one body of Christ. Now, uh, I would say I'm not not condemning the common cup, but neither should we condemn the individual cups, right? The method of distribution, and it's the same with baptism, uh, we would say there's nothing wrong with immersing someone. In fact, I actually did my first uh, immersion baptism, back, um, let's see, that was in September. Yeah, that was the afternoon that we had our our 170th anniversary. Uh, I actually did my very first one of those. So we, we obviously don't say there's anything wrong with that, but we would react against somebody who would say, that's the only way that you can baptize someone. We would say, no, again, the method of the water being applied is not what makes baptism baptism, and neither is how much of the wine you get and whether it's in an individual cup make the Lord's Supper what is the Lord's Supper so yeah thank you those are all great examples and there are others also where the scriptures do not speak definitively or define something or uh, establish something as this must be the practice and in those areas notice Paul is saying live in harmony with one another you know you are playing different parts here, like musical instruments playing different parts, but live in harmony. And obviously it goes without saying, but we should say it, who is it that wants to divide and cause all kinds of division over things like this? It would be Satan, of course, who wants to divide us and turn us one against another. So at any rate, live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Verse 6, that together you may with, notice here, with one voice glorify God uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's sort of like the idea of even though you're many different voices, you know, when, when you listen, again, this, I guess another sort of musical uh, analogy. But when not it fantastic when you listen to... A choir composed of many different voices and and they're singing in such unison That it almost sounds like they're one collective voice isn't that neat when you hear that and there's a clarity there And they they it's almost as if there's one person singing with all these different parts You know alto and soprano and so on and they all sound as if they're only one voice And that's the idea of the unity glorify God with one voice together, okay? Uh, and uh, verse 7 Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Hmm. So what does that mean? Welcome one another. How has Christ welcomed us? So he's saying here, look at the way Christ welcomed you and welcome one another the same way. What might we learn from that? Any things we might learn from that? How has Christ welcomed us? forgiveness absolutely love about also unconditional love right not you measure up to this and then i'll love you this standard right here then i'll love you no i love you even in spite of your sins right <laughs> so you know that um, so all those things come along with it and, and grace undeserved merit and favor on god's part and so that is to guide us in the way we welcome one another. That, and that's both within the church itself, as we welcome one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as those who come into the church, right, from the quote-unquote outside, that we remember how we were welcomed by Christ. And we welcome them in the same way, with love and unconditional love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, and so on. And notice there that if we do that, for the glory of God. God is glorified when we do that. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Well, who are the circumcised? Jews, yeah, who demanded circumcision. Notice there, Christ became a servant, and that's a, a, a word that even Christ uses. Remember he said he came not to be served but to? Serve and give his life as a ransom for many. um, uh, Circumcised to show God's truthfulness, or we might say his faithfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, who are the patriarchs? Way back. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Remember in Genesis 12, God says, uh, He's talking to Abraham. And says, by you, uh, he promises them offspring more uh, uh, numerous than the stars in the sky. And then finally, make of them a great nation. And here, Abraham's 75 at that point and got not, no kids yet. And remember, the, the one kicker in there and the promises, by you, what? All nations of the earth shall be blessed. And again, that's a, that's a promise way back in Genesis that through his line and through his descendants is going to come Christ. And all nations of the earth not just the circumcised not just the Jews but all nations of the earth will be blessed as a result okay now and notice there in verse 9 what's the outcome and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy now let's take a look here there's a strong case that Paul makes here and there could be other there could be other sightings here But let's just click down these. Um, He's going to quote the Old Testament here. As it is written, and the first one comes from 2 Samuel 22, verse 50, and primarily, though, Psalm 18, verse 49. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, or uh, one of your translations might have the nations. It's the same thing. And sing to your name. Then... In Deuteronomy 32, 43, and again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Next one, Psalm 117, verse 1. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And here's the one from our, te- from our Old Testament lesson today. Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verse 10. And eleven. And again, Isaiah says, Now notice this is the only, the only one of these where Paul says, this is where this came from. Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Okay? And that's uh, verse ten, which I omitted, unfortunately, in verse eleven uh, of Isaiah eleven. So what Paul is doing here is showing them. That throughout the Old Testament, uh, it was always God's plan that his salvation was not going to be just to an exclusive group of people, but that all the nations, the Gentiles included, uh, would, would be a part of the kingdom. And verse 13 is kind of his wish, I think, for uh, his desire for all of them as they live together. May the God of hope, and there was, notice that title again, the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So the results of believing are joy and peace, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And again, we have a sure and certain hope in and through Christ. So Christians are people of, uh, uh, with great hope when it comes to life, death, and eternal life. Okay? Okay. So that's a quick breeze through that one. The epistle lesson. Any comments or questions here? All right. Oh, yes. Done. Uh, okay. Okay. Good question. So the question was: We uh, maybe should we apply that to other religions? and in, in the United States, or around the world, really, and focus more on what we have in common than what we have that separates us, right? Is that what you were saying? All right, I would say only to the extent, though, that we don't compromise the clear, certain word of God, right? And, uh, boy, with some religions, that's a pretty narrow, <laughs> narrow slice that we're left with, uh, I guess, to agreeing that there is a supreme being. Uh, but then when, as soon as you start talking about who is that supreme being, and, and you know, with some religions in particular, you're, you're pretty much off the tracks at that point. I will say, though, too, that I, um, while we don't agree in some things with some other denominations, I really, don't, I really don't care to speak disparagingly about other Christian denominations. Again, as long as they're confessing Christ. And we do have uh, others who obviously confess some different things, about everything from the Lord's Supper to baptism uh, and to some other things. And I'm not saying that that we don't think those things are important, but I first rejoice that that person or that those people are believing and trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and everlasting life. Um, You know, some of you know that uh, I did my uh, doctorate ministry work at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And, again, um, I just wanted to make sure when I was going there that I could write when I wrote as a Lutheran and not have to write as a Baptist, and they assured me of that, and it went, it went fine. But I tell you, I had a, I, through going through that, I had a great deal of respect for uh, this was Southern Baptist and how um, seriously they take the Word of God as the inspired and inerrant Word of God and had a lot of great conversations. With, these were with other pastors, and most of them were Baptists. So again, I, uh, I think that um, there, there is a way that even in, within the Christian church, we have to be careful that we don't you know, speak with disparaging and condescending ways about others who, again, are our brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost, okay? Or even worse, I, I never like to hear disparaging comments about other Lutheran, especially Lutheran church, Missouri Synod congregations. And... And that can happen as well. That, uh, you know, that that church down there, uh, did you hear what they're doing down there? Well, come on. You know, uh, again, is this an area that God has spoken clearly on, or is this, again, an area where we can live in harmony with one another and not be so critical, you know? I I think it gives a very poor witness to the unbelieving world, to non-Christians, when they hear, you know, one Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod member uh, being critical of what's going on at another Missouri Synod church. It, it may not be the way that we would choose to do it But is it really wrong? Is it is there something really wrong about it? Well, so then what is it? And where does God's word speak about it? You know, so again this idea of living in harmony I think is something we could maybe do a little better job of all right. All right. We got less than 10 minutes left Let's move to the gospel lesson uh, And here we're gonna get uh, a good dose of John the Baptist coming up We get a lot of John the Baptist in Advent preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. So starting, we're going to look at Matthew 3, starting at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist. Now, what do we know about John the Baptist? He is a, um, uh, the son of a priest named Zechariah, remember? And uh, mother, uh, Zechariah, was married to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was a cousin to Mary, the Virgin Mary. So it's kind of all in the family here, so to speak, okay? And so this John the Baptist now is fully grown, and he is starting his adult ministry now, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, okay? So he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's interesting that a lot of the prophets operated out in the wilderness. And boy, when you say wilderness, it really is wilderness. There's not a whole lot out there. For some of you who've been to uh, Israel, even today, uh, when you're out in the wilderness, you're, you're out in the wilderness. And that's where he was. And he was in um, the wilderness of Judea. And I was reading that many many think it was down in the southern part of Judea, down where the, um, the River Jordan is about to enter into the Dead Sea. Okay? And in that area. Now, if you go there today, uh, they'll take you to the Jordan River, and they'll show you a whole bunch of, it depends I think, on which bus you're on, Uh, different spots we don't know exactly precisely uh, but again it was very close to that to that area at least so he's out there and notice he is saying his message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand now what does it mean to repent what are we as Lutherans yeah it's a turning around It literally means change of mind the literal Greek translation of metanoia is a change of mind but it's a turning around from what you were doing or what you were saying or what you were thinking is a turning away from it but also as Lutherans we say that true repentance not only includes contrition for our sin or sorrow over our sin but also faith and trust in forgiveness for that sin through Jesus Christ. Okay? So there's really two parts to it that we as Lutherans emphasize. There's not just the turning away and the, the, the sorrow, the contrition, the turning away but also the faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Why repent? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew uses that expression, kingdom of heaven, 32 times in his gospel. It's the equivalent of the kingdom of God, or the the reign and rule of God is at hand. And it's here in Jesus Christ. This is what he's really literally referring to here, okay? It's here. Verse 3. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Here comes Isaiah again, when he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And so what Matthew is saying here is, This guy, John the Baptist, is the one who fulfills what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is the one who's preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. Literally, the Lord is at hand now, And he's preparing it by, again, his ministry of baptizing and calling for repentance. Now, he went beyond the cover of GQ. uh, Verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I didn't really realize this until I was uh, preparing for this, that Elijah and some of the other prophets wore a garment of camel's hair uh, similar to this. And it was in, you might say, it was in protest or the opposite of the lavish uh, luxury that some of them were living in for that day. In other words, he was going countercultural, you might say, and, and, and rebelling against Uh, the the opulent uh, attire that some had in that day. And believe it or not, locusts uh, were eaten at that time. I'm not saying they were the food of choice for everyone, but they were either boiled or um, um, put over open fire before they were eaten to uh, sterilize them. And the honey uh, would be most likely date honey, not, not the bee honey, but date honey. If you go there today, you can buy jars and jars and jars of it. All right, Uh, verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Uh, So he is getting quite a following. People are leaving Jerusalem and going out to listen to this guy. And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan. Now, again, we think this was not the same baptism that we're going to get post-resurrection of Jesus, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This was a baptism, but again, a baptism of repentance, So you were baptized, and as you were repenting of your sin, okay? And Jesus is going to come, not in this lesson, but Jesus is going to come and be baptized by him as well. Not that he needed to repent of anything. Um, Confessing their sins. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, you brood of vipers. (laughs) In other words, you offspring of poisonous snakes. Uh, Pharisees were lay people. Uh, they were extremely um, concerned with the Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath day laws. Uh, Sadducees were the, were the clergy. Many of them were quite uh, affluent, quite wealthy. They ran the temple and the worship life in the temple. Okay? So they came out. They're out on a scouting mission to see about this guy. And uh, they don't get a warm reception from John. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath to come is going to be in 70 AD when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. And then ultimately, the wrath to come is on the final day of judgment again, looking forward uh, ahead to that, rather. Um, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, let your life show that you are truly repentant. You know, uh, Demonstrate your repentance by what you do. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So you can kind of tell they were... They were really kind of banking on the fact that they are descendants of Abraham. And after all, God gave the promise to Abraham and his descendants, so we got it made. You know, uh, we're, we're in. Okay. If we had more time, I would talk about how we see this play out in some Lutheran congregations where um, somebody might say something like, my great-great-great-grandparents were charter members here this congregation. In other words, see, I've got, I, I got it made. Right, so don't say you have got Abraham as your father. Or don't say your great great grandparents were. I mean, that's, I don't mean it to mean that. I mean, that's that's great. That's nice, but that doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. Uh, God is able from these stones to raise up children. There's a word play there in Aramaic. Stones and children sound the words sound very familiar uh, for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Boy, there's a a judgment reference if there ever was one. Okay? Uh, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Of course, a reference to Christ coming. We don't know the the, uh, Holy Spirit and fire, whether that's a reference to Pentecost, may well be. It may be also the Holy Spirit and judgment of fire for anyone who does not believe. And then finally, another uh, judgment reference. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Clear reference to hell and judgment. Okay? All right, we are out of time. It is 1029 and counting, so I will close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.